0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Zara Sultana, MP for Coventry South, elected in 2019, member of the Socialist Campaign Group and perennial thorn in the side of this Conservative government. This week, Zara and I discuss the Tories' attempts to impose the costs of the pandemic on those least able to bear them, the lessons the left can learn from Corbynism and why we need to fight for a transformative global Green New Deal in the wake of this crisis. As always a shout out to our amazing patrons your support is critical for covering the costs of producing this podcast. Without your help we wouldn't be able to continue to bring you these interviews with such amazing guests. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while but haven't gotten around to it please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com/a-world-to-win pod. That's patreon.com/a-world-to-win pod. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour-long episode this week and full-length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show and exclusive offers on merch, my forthcoming books, and subscriptions to tribune. On November 2nd, I'll also be holding a live question and answer session for patrons only. So if you want to submit a question to me about the show or anything else, make sure you sign up to become a patron today. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lipman and Miliband Trust for providing us with the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter, at Lipman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who have let us use their track, Heavyweight Champion of the World, as our intro and outro music. Now, here is Zara Sultana on the government's decision to stop funding free school meals for some of the poorest children in the UK as we enter a winter of renewed lockdown measures. Hello, Zara Sultana, and thank you for joining me on A World to Win.
1: Hi, Grace Blakely. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> so, we're going to just start by talking about a couple of stories that are in the news this week. The first one we have from The Guardian Marcus Rashford in despair as MPs reject free school meal plan. This is obviously the news that Conservatives have voted down Labour's motion to extend free school meals through the holidays for low income children. So, I mean, you know, I can imagine what you probably think of this, but what do you think of this? <laughs>
1: I don't know how to describe it without being utterly disgusted and sickened. Mm. I was in the chamber for some of the debates and the way Tory MPs were defending, opposing, giving kids, poor kids, working class kids, that essential meal that they uh, would otherwise starve on. It just was so cruel and the way you know i saw them walk into the lobby and i just couldn't believe it really how someone can go to sleep that night after voting that way when we as mp's have the power to change that and also the fact that we're not a poor country we're the sixth richest country in the world there's enough wealth in this country to make sure every kid is fed you know everyone has decent housing the the basic human rights that we all deserve and at the same time we see this government um you know shower money and enriched their friends we've given 401 i say we they they have given Mm. 401 million pounds to circo for its failing test and trace system there was 500 million used for rishi sunak's eat out to help out so we've given nando's a lot of money as well but we don't have 20 million pounds to feed starving working class kids and i think that just shows where this government's priorities are and it's for their one percent friends and not for the rest of us
0: Yeah. And like, what do you think of the comments by, I can't remember which Tory MP it was, but there was one of them and the, the same line was repeated. I was just on Politics Live by another Tory MP saying that this is about parental responsibility. So it's feckless working class parents who are like spending their money on going to the pub rather than feeding their kids.
1: I volunteered at Coventry Food Bank and the way universal credit has forced people into food banks, the way that a lot of families who actually are working families, these are people in jobs, are depending on charities and the third sector to help put food on the table tells you that it's our economic system that simply isn't paying people enough money to survive. And to say it's parental responsibility as though parents are, you know, putting themselves in this situation where they can't make ends meet that's not something any parent wants to you know see happen and this is where the state is meant to make sure that these situations aren't happening and as a a country as a government they have completely utterly failed and they it it is the state's responsibility to make sure that kids aren't hungry and that parents are paid or you know working people are paid good wages
0: yeah i mean there was obviously that appalling tweet again by krishnan guru murphy saying Something along the lines of everyone who's tweeting about Marcus Rashford's campaign, why don't they just give a bit of money, exactly.
1: I mean, reliance on charities and the third sector, I think that is completely the wrong answer. We pay taxes in this country and those taxes are meant to be funding public services. They're meant to be redistributing the wealth the wealth that working people are creating to ensure that they are able to have the things that they need, like healthcare, like like education. Um, so I think you know this charity model of uh, providing public services. I think that's something that has to be completely dispelled. Um, it's not the way we should be functioning as a society.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The next story that we have shows, you know, the government being mean with public funds in another way. This is a story from the Manchester Evening News. Andy Burnham warns government not to play poker with people's lives over tier three restrictions. Now, obviously, this story has developed, but we saw Andy Burnham in negotiations with the government over uh, wanting extra support to support people on low incomes who face a loss of income as a result of these restrictions. The government just walked away from the table, leaving Manchester without a deal, and has now announced, Rishi Sunak's now announced a kind of extension of the jobs support scheme. But there are a lot of people saying, well, this was too little too late, and it's not enough. And clearly the government has only actually responded to these pressures when it's, you know parts of london and you know westminster that are um, going into lockdown and there was no kind of consideration for those areas in in the north that have been in tier 2 tier 3 restrictions for a while
1: i agree with that um i Looking at the leadership Andy Burnham has shown, it's been great to see him stand up for low-paid workers in Greater Manchester and the North. And by doing that, he's standing up for the rest of us because being in the Midlands, we are now seeing, you know, Coventry today has been told that we will be moving into tier two from saturday and of course there's other parts of the country that have already moved into tier three and the government has been treating regions especially in the north and the midlands with contempt and essentially bullying them into accepting deals that aren't enough how can people survive on two-thirds of their wages are their bills going to be reduced by two-thirds when they go to the supermarket you know is the at the end of that checkout going to be two-thirds less because of the pandemic no um and i think it's been an eye-opener for a lot of people who might have believed in this levelling up agenda that the government constantly boasts about and this really showed that they really are detached from the realities of other parts of the country and I think it speaks to that kind of Westminster London centrist approach that they have not to say that you know people in London aren't struggling but more the mentality mm. of politicians that are just in the Westminster village
0: and do you think that as an MP for the Midlands, as you were, you were saying, do you think that the government's handling of COVID, the kind of debacle over free school meals, you know, the failure to strike a deal with different regions is going to affect their support in the Midlands and the North?
1: I would like to think that it will have an impact uh, when it comes to the elections in May next year for the mayoral elections in, that we have. Midlands as well as the local elections but I also hope that the anger that people feel when they see the fact that we have the highest excess death toll in Europe the fact that we've entered the worst recession on record I hope that they remember how angry that makes them feel in 2024 when the general election comes and that Mm. the sound bites that this government has been successful with so far fall flat on their face and I, I really do hope that you know we win the next general election. I wanted us to win the last general election. Mm. Of course, Labour in power, especially locally, you can really see the impact that makes. And it's what we
0: need. Yeah, Um, the next story we have is from BBC News, and it's test and trace higher profits expected by Serco, which expects a trading profit of between 160 and 165 million, which is higher than the 135 million that it estimated. And obviously, you know, the government has hired Serco to implement its test and trace system, and it hasn't worked, has it?
1: this is a failing company that is showing profits and um, claiming success when really um, it is hitting new lows on a weekly basis. I think it's hit a new low of 59% when Sage are telling us that we need at least 80% of um, contacts traced for it to be a viable or successful endeavor. And what they do is quintessential of um, a public sector company that's interested in profits and not public health they're cutting corners they're pushing down wages all to maximize profits and it's something I've said from um, the very beginning that we need to put this our test and trace system in the hands of local authorities and local health teams because they know our communities better than anyone else so circo needs to be sacked and I think this speaks to the cronyism or the nepotism that I was, um, you know, I've witnessed right from the very beginning of my MP journey, essentially, where, you know, you've got a company who has a CEO who's the brother of a former Conservative MP and his partner is a Conservative MP donor and she gave, you know, thousands of pounds to the Conservative Party before the general election and then you've got a health minister who's their former chief spin doctor and I think that web is disgusting um and it it, you know in in other places they might even you know use other names for it we're just calling it cronyism and nepotism but there's a disgusting level of potential corruption that you know that's what others might call it i'm not saying it is because you know that would make things a bit problematic but that's what it looks like
0: Mm. Right now we're going to go into the next section of the show where we're going to talk about your life, your career so far and yeah just the kind of uh, issues facing the left in the UK more generally. So can you start by telling us a little bit about how you became a socialist and how you got involved in the Labour Party?
1: So I don't know when I first began calling myself a socialist. I think I didn't always have the language to describe my politics growing up, but I knew that I was very very angry with the Iraq war and seeing the government essentially a Labour government decide to go to war on, you know, what we now know as fabricated lies. Um, and the effect that I had in the region, but also in our communities in the UK, so what the war on terror meant for Muslim communities and um, ethnic minority communities from a civil liberties perspective, I remember my local well, one of the areas local to us having CCTV cameras installed and they were put under the guise of traffic control and really they were essentially Mm. spying on the local Muslim community. And then also, you know, it's multi-layered. So I also really benefited from going to community centres growing up. It was one Mm. of the things that I did on a weekly basis and then, um, you know, seeing those closed down. But at the same time, when I was at school, I went to a school that has... Around forty percent of kids on free school meals and the national average Mm -hmm. is around twelve. And my school was outstanding at the time from Ofsted, but we had senior police officers locally saying all the kids in my school would end up being gang members. They literally went to Birmingham City Council and said, There's a school. And the person had never, the, the, the senior police officer had never visited our school, but said, I could go into assembly and every kid there will be able to tell me which gang that they would end up in. Um, and then, uh, of course, growing up just before entering university, it was when um, the coalition government had come in in 2010, announcing that they were going to triple tuition fees and that was directly going to hit my intake going in. And I could see how politics was constantly me. Doing things to my generation and things that we couldn't do anything about because we didn't have the vote, and people were marching. They marched against Iraq, they were marching against the tripling of tuition fees, and nothing was changing. And while that might, you know, put people off politics, I decided to kind of get more involved with stuff at university. So that was around free education, around Palestine solidarity, around anti racism on campus. And that introduced me to the National Union of Students, which was a really important space for me to kind of develop my politics and my networks and then in 2016 of course Jeremy was leader of the Labour Party and I was a member I'd been a member since I was 17 but I wasn't able to get involved with the party locally but through young Labour it opened up this new space and that's where my journey really began with the
0: Labour Party. Now, you've touched on this, but you know, you're know you obviously very young for an MP. You're certainly one of the youngest MPs on the Labour Party. And you're also a really important voice for the movement. And as you mentioned, young people have been kind of screwed over by the financial crisis and are now likely to bear the bunt of this crisis as well. And partly as a result of that, they're now basically at the core of Labour's coalition. So I'm um, interested in how you think the party can speak to the interests of young people without losing a focus on class analysis so without going into this kind of intergenerational warfare type discourse but actually focusing on the material issues that young people face.
1: I think it's really easy for people to frame politics now as you know old people versus young people like you said it's really important that we don't forget the focus on class because it's more important than ever With the with the vote yesterday, we saw how class really played a huge part. It plays a huge part in everything, but we have, you know, um, a party that's funded by one third of UK billionaires with an Oxford, Bullingdon boy prime minister a former banker chancellor's family or billionaires a privately educated predominantly cabinet and all of these people voted against free school meals for working class kids so i think you we can't forget class ever mm. um, and age has come to track class in many ways so when we look at young people my generation, our generation is the first generation to be worse off than their parents. And that's, the, you know, that's unheard of. And young people now overwhelmingly have no access to any form of capital. And when we think thinking of, you know, do they own their own homes? No. Um, well, more of the older generation do. And I think it's really important that we speak to that reality on the ground um and we speak to that um you know the loss that our generation feel one when i graduated i found it really hard to find a job and i felt like i had been sold a dream i was told all you have to do is get good grades all you have to do is get good a levels all you have to do is go to university and get good grades and then i felt i did all of those things so where's this job that you know a well-paid job at the end of that where is that 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 thing that I've been promised and it felt like an entire scam and then like what added salt to the wound essentially was the 50k debt that continues to grow and you mm. just wonder what the hell's going on so I think it's really important that we speak in the language of class that we appeal to older people who of course have too who've also been left behind when we look at the older people living in poverty that we especially see during winter when we look at the social care system and in many ways how it's really not fit for purpose and how, you know, so many people have been left behind. Um, it's really important that we also speak to, to that reality, too, and bring people together.
0: So the Tory agenda today also seems to be trying to divide the country through culture wars based on xenophobia and, and racism. Things like, you know, trying to focus on the song at the end of the proms or Pretty Patel making all sorts of horrific announcements about the things that this government is going to do to stop migrants crossing the English Channel. It seems like as long as this divide predominates, Labour is going to struggle, both because it you know, doesn't seem to know how to respond and because the Tories seem to have a fair amount of support amongst their base for these policies. So how can Labour resist racism, nationalism and imperialism without falling into those traps that are laid out by the Tories? You mentioned
1: uh, BBC proms. I've been involved with um blm or anti-racist stuff for a very long time and not a single person even brought up proms and the fact that that was brought up as um something that people were really concerned about i think speaks to just the way distraction tactics are used by this government to draw people into these culture wars like you said and um Mm. these culture wars quote unquote are issues to do with racism and they're issues to do with you know liberation politics like trans rights and i think it's really important that we we don't sidestep them as though they are issues that can just be ignored. That would mean for us on the left abandoning fundamental principles and our politics and struggles. And we can't abandon them. Mm. And we can't let, you know, we can't. One thing in Parliament, I've, I've, thought you know we can't out Tory the Tories we can't be more right wing than the right wing that is absolutely ludicrous we can't abandon people just because of we, we might think it's a good electoral strategy it's not we have to fight for our politics and we have to push back against all of these nasty nasty narratives and it's really important that we impose class politics into that so we have to remind people that when they might be told that so x group is to blame for x thing it's really the economic system that is rigged and it's our job on the left, it's our job as the Labour Party to provide a vision and I think that's what's crucial, that we need to have those proposals and we need to have that vision that redistributes wealth and power in the favour of working people and allow people to also get involved with our movements and draw them into what we're fighting for so they don't fall into those traps and I think the Labour Party has to resist racism, nationalism and imperialism because if we don't then who are we?
0: Mm. So, what made you decide to stand at the last election, and what was it like to be elected at the moment of the defeat of Corbynism? So,
1: in 2019, I ran in the European elections, and that was a decision that I made um, on the basis that we probably weren't going to stay in the European Union for much long, longer than you know the end of the year, the end of 2019 at least. And I did that because I could see the narrative that was emerging from the likes of Nigel Farage and others, where, you know, it was migrants being blamed for everything. And it was incredibly nasty. And I thought it's really important as a young person, as someone who is from an Asian background, as someone who is you know, from the Midlands to get involved and, you know, put a bit of fight into this and say that we're not going to accept this kind of politics. And that was a really interesting campaign. It was only three weeks long, but I was able to really just develop some skills I'd never run in a national election at all ever before or local election other than you know student unions related stuff and I was yeah it just it was a really important election I thought and we did really well in Birmingham but not so well in the rest of the region um and we only returned one MEP that election so it was you know the Labour Party took a hammering um Mm. and then we of course had um the general election and I was encouraged by comrades who told me to you know put my name forward So I did. I kind of just have um, a habit of just applying for things or going for things, put myself forward um, and just seeing what happens so I did and it was a roller coaster I was selected on my birthday and it Mm. was a five-day selection campaign it was very fast-paced I I worked in retail for four years so I guess I really thrive in fast-paced environments like Mm. a really drawn-out campaign I don't know if I'd be able to hack it but it was amazing we had loads of people you know help out in Coventry there were people who had never been involved with the Labour Party before I even had friends from the International Union of Socialist Youth from Sweden and Austria who came and helped for a few a few days and it was just really really yeah wholesome and lovely and of course election night I saw the exit poll I thought I had lost I kind of braced myself for that my election went to two recounts and then when I realized that I had won but of course we weren't going into power it was incredibly bittersweet I can't remember how much I probably cried I probably yeah I cried a lot um Mm -hmm. for me, you know, we needed a Jeremy Corbyn led Labour government and we absolutely still do um, because of the crises we face as a, as, a, as a country, but also, you know, as, you know, the planet and then coming into Parliament and seeing how many Tory MPs in those backbenches benches absolutely full, and then, you know, just pinching myself and kind of realising I have a lot of work to do. <laughs>
0: What was it like coming into Parliament as a a young Muslim socialist woman faced with just, you know, this like sea of old male, white, conservative, neoliberal faces just like shouting and jeering?
1: You feel like you shouldn't be there, that this place was built mm. built for you. Just with the culture of the way people speak to each other, the kind of norms that exist within Parliament, even if you break it down to, you know, how many portraits there are of ethnic minority people in Parliament, there's probably very few. I think there's, I know that there's one of Diane Abbott, so I can definitely say there's <laughs> one, um, yeah. but it's not in the main palace. It's more in, you know, by Portcullis, but there's more horses within the Palace of Westminster, portraits including horses than women. Um, And I think that speaks to that speaks to um, you know, a lot of things. And it's intimidating with, you know, it's arcane rituals. And it's like Laura Pidcock said in her maiden speech, it was built to exclude our class and our gender. And for me, I guess it would also be my race. I kind Mm -hmm. of was very aware of that. And I know I see it as a job to serve. So I kind of had to get over that quite quickly. But every now and then it does come and slap you in the face and you're reminded. But I use that as a kind of motivation that, you know, it, we're, we're here to change things. We're not here to settle for the status quo.
0: I remember when you got into that issue around the select committee um, yeah. appointments. Um, and I remember thinking quite how like weird the fascination of the little political bubble that we have in this country with the just arcane rituals of Westminster. But like, I also think, you know, to an extent over the last several years, and obviously it's understandable because, you know, there was this big electoral project. The left has become a bit obsessed with those, Kind of Westminster-based rituals with like prime minister's questions and debates that are taking place on the floor, rather than thinking about the much wider need to build up the left in other institutions and to kind of set the agenda. Do you think that's the case, or do you think we could use Westminster better with the Tory majority of
1: eighty? It's very hard. For me mm. to see how we can use Westminster effectively of course if we were in power it would be completely different but I think there's mm. different ways of using it, select committees me and you will, f- will agree in terms of the fact that their function is incredibly limited, their recommendations are not implemented they don't have to be legally implemented by the government so I find select committees as something that could serve a better function than, than what they currently do and then also other things that I've discovered in Parliament the kind of power, the speaker has in terms of what amendments come forward um you know mm. the, the way call lists are um you know created and things like that there's so many different ways where you see things and you're like i'm really not sure i'm okay with the way this works and you just yeah you realize a lot of things being there that you probably wouldn't otherwise i think it's really important that the left you know focuses on building Um, in our communities and movement. And, you know, when we find ourselves in a place where we are in government or we have a majority, seeing how those things can work together. But it's really important to have a strong base that can carry that politics and hold the Labour Party accountable.
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, it seems like one of the big takeaways that people are drawing from the 2019 election defeat is the need to achieve a better balance between electoral politics and the wider movement. So, you know, momentum, social movements, the labor movement, etc. Do you think that is a kind of big lesson that we should have learned from the 2019 election defeat? And if so, how do we get there?
1: I think the 2019 election always has to be seen, um, you know, as very, very different uh, to 2017. In 2017, Mm -hmm. We had a huge increase in our vote share. We had, you know, a socialist leader. We had, you know, Momentum and other groups doing amazing things. Um, And it it seemed like, you know, we could actually get into government or, you know, that election campaign, everyone says if it was a week longer, if it was two weeks longer, then the results could have been completely different. And of course, in 2019, it really was Brexit that wrecked our hopes of winning office. The decisions that we made Mm -hmm. when it came to a second referendum um, and all of those things, it divided that that coalition that we had built in 2017 and it trapped us into parliamentary games and people saw the Labour Party as being you know just like the others like you know the politicians Mm. playing politics and it looked like we were defending the status quo and even knocking on the doors you know people were saying the things that we were used to that you're all the same but they weren't saying that in 2017 it made us look like we weren't an anti-establishment force and under Jeremy we really were so I think the lesson to take from 2019 is that if we do want to transform society and redistribute wealth and power in a meaningful way then we have to embrace those anti-establishment sentiments that we know are very very popular and very common in you know all of our communities.
0: And how do you think we can do that? Because, um, I mean, obviously, we, you know, Labour seemed to be able to do that much more successfully in 2017. But it does feel like the Tory party has tried to reinvent itself around this idea of, you know, rejecting what they call the kind of metropolitan liberal elite and fashioning themselves as this kind of, you know, progressive, economically, but culturally conservative party whose values align with most of the population how do we push back against that and actually say no these guys are the establishment
1: i think the, their response to this pandemic is um something that the labor party has to highlight and keep highlighting because they've shown whose interests that they serve and everyone would have had experiences of, you know, not being able to get a test, not being able to see a loved one, their education being affected. And we've seen other countries deal with this pandemic in a completely different way. So I think it's about showing how politicians in the Conservative Party have, um, you know, used this pandemic to enrich themselves and their friends and their, you know, um, their class. At the same time, you know, we are going to see more people Enter food banks. The Labour Party needs to be obviously working on issues to do with food um, and food security or insecurity around housing. One of our huge, you know, vote base is people who privately rent, um, and we can't be throwing any of those communities under the bus, in fact, that we need to be standing with them in their fights. And I think that's the work that ACORN, Tenants Union, as well as Living Rent and all the others, the work that they do is so incredible, because when people don't want to talk about politics, they do want to talk about the issues that they face. And it's something that I learned as a community organiser for the Labour Party, we need to speak to the issues that people are facing and bring the solutions that will change them, their lives for the better.
0: You were obviously endorsed by a lot of trade unions and as Unite withdraws its funding from the Labour Party um, and redirects that actually potentially towards some more grassroots community organisations, how essential do you think the link is between the Labour movement and the Labour Party and what more needs to be done on both sides to sustain it going forward? I
1: was um, proudly endorsed by lots of trade unions and including Unite, I'm I'm a proudly Unite member. So the decision that they've made recently to reduce their annual um, donation to the Labour Party is um, something that I was aware of um, when it happened of course and also the fact that um, it, we, we we sensed that there was going to be some kind of decision along those lines given how um, the, the party and the union seem to be um, not in the best of places and I think um, that is of, of course a huge concern because the links between the trade union movement and the Labour Party are essential um, it's within the DNA of the Labour Party the Labour Party was The political was created to be the political wing of the labour movement, and that connection has to be maintained to keep it rooted in working class struggles and working class communities. And I think it's really important um, that we remember that there's not, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we had um, labour MPs who crossed picket lines, labour MPs who didn't support industrial action um and i think we need to always remember um that we are from the trade union movement we are of the trade union movement um and that we need to support more working class voices in the party and also focus on community organizing and rebuilding any of those relationships that are now a bit um you know more difficult um of recent times so i think it's really really important that we we work on that always
0: your maiden speech was a really incredible moment for uh, for a movement that had become very disillusioned in the wake of the election. You spoke really passionately about the need to end 40 years of Thatcherism. Um, and I thought that was really interesting uh, because the Tory party is obviously claiming that it's been completely transformed, that austerity is over, that, you know, they're a post-Thatcherite party in many ways. How do you think Thatcherism is still embedded in the way that we run the economy?
1: I didn't expect there to be that kind of reaction to the maiden speech. And actually some other new MPs were, po- were politely advised to not do what I did with my maiden speech after I made it by some yeah. um, more senior colleagues of ours, which I find very interesting. Um, but, yeah. but I would be cautious, into, uh, cautious from saying too much about Thatcherism um, and the economy because I know that you could speak much more in depth. Um, But fundamentally, um, the the point that I was making is that the changes that Thatcher had brought And made to the country had never been overturned and I think what was interesting um, was that what I was saying was essentially what Tony Blair himself had said what Peter Mandelson had said and even Lisa Nandy during the leadership race and I got way more slack and way more articles written about what I said and actually not the opportunity to retract um, or, or, or put my defense which again was an interesting experience as a new MP and the point that I was just making was that the deregulation and the dominance of the City of London, the privatisation of public services, the anti-trade union laws were never overturned. So how can we see that as like, you know, how can we see an ideological shift have been made when those things hadn't been transformed? And the fact that, you know, the the way the public... Um, sector was still seen as bad and private sector seen as good like these things had never really been changed and the Labour Party under Jeremy was going to make that change and it never happened and we see that um, you know we see that Thatcherism is still you know not it hasn't ended with the way that we're responding to the pandemic and it's no coincidence that we have had one of the worst responses um, and that's because of that neoliberal politics.
0: Yeah I mean you are completely right. I completely agree with you about that that point that Thatcherism hasn't hasn't ended. Obviously, people got angry about it because they were like, well, you know, we had a Labour government between now and then. But as you say, Blair actively said that a lot of stuff Thatcher did he didn't want to upend, whether that was about privatization, whether that was about failing to repeal the anti-trade union legislation, about the deregulation of the financial sector, which was actually deepened under Blair. And indeed, Thatcher then came out and said, well, what was your greatest achievement? It was (laughs) uh, the fact that that Blair came into power. So it just seems very obvious to me that that is the case. And it, it, again, astounded me that you got so much flack.
1: I, I think the argument was that was being made about me was that I was trying to say that new labor didn't do anything good. And I actually right. said at the time that I and my family benefited from, you know, the national minimum wage and sure start centers and the open university was a great, great initiative. Like all of these things are good, but we need to be honest and we need to be critical and we need to, you know, look in the mirror and see what like deeply structural changes did we make? And you know, the answer you will find.
0: Yeah. Completely. I mean, at that point about structural changes is so important because those structural changes that we would want to make would be ones that would be very difficult to repeal. Things like the creation of the NHS, which is obviously done by a Labour government. And then despite the fact that it's opposed by the Conservatives, you can't repeal because it has so much popularity. Like a lot of that stuff that happened under Thatcherism, I mean, particularly about, you know, the way she deregulated the financial sector, sold off a bunch of council housing and kind of created therefore this boom in in housing markets and then obviously a lot of people who own their own homes end up becoming a real foundation of the conservative party that's a real foundational shift in the way the economy works and we're still living with it today because like you were saying you know there are private renters up and down the country who can't afford to buy their own homes young people can't afford to get on the property ladder and that is the legacy of Thatcherism, and it's still with us right
1: Absolutely. Even when we're looking at the housing crisis today, we can't ignore the right to buy and what that did to the stock that councils had and how they've never really been able to replenish. And we always find
0: ourselves going back to the policies that she brought in. Mm. In your speech, you also talked about the Green New Deal, which has been a a recurring theme on this show. We had Naomi Klein on to talk about it a few weeks ago, and a lot of our other guests have, have spoken about it as well. It kind of seems very clear that as we move from the emergency of the pandemic into the recovery, the Green New Deal is going to be more urgent than ever. But also, it's something that people can kind of pick up and talk about without necessarily providing the kind of detail about what it looks like. So, and, you know, that means that the kind of, you know, more centrist politicians and thinkers can just take that up, like Biden, for example, and say, look, we're doing this amazing climate package. But actually, when you look down into it, you're like, well, this isn't as transformative as, as we might like. So I'm wondering what you think the Green New Deal needs to look like and how we can kind of try and fight for it as the, uh, as the pandemic comes to a, well, maybe not an end, it might be with us for a long time, but as the emergency comes to an end.
1: Yes, um, when it comes to the Green New Deal, I think people always talk about the big picture stuff um, and it makes it quite difficult for some people to maybe see how it would impact their actual daily lives and for me a greeny deal is looking at collective solutions to the biggest challenge that we face as a society and what that would actually mean um in in you know simple ways of describing is a huge investment in public programs so when we're thinking about wind turbines to home insulation when we're thinking about public transport you know i always get really excited by the concept of free public, free green public transport. And the fact that, you know, if we want people to move away from driving, what alternatives are there? How are we even, you know, going to get there? Um, And and green industries, and I think green industries particularly speaks to Coventry, and the West Midlands, because they have always been seen as the centre of the car industry in the UK and how can we move to uh, greening up those industries that are you know uh, reliant on fossil fuels so it's about reorientating the economy essentially around um, you know human need number one not private profit but also dealing with the climate crisis and beyond that when we kind of look at what's happening across the globe we also have to acknowledge that the climate struggle is a class struggle without borders and it's working people across the world um, who face its worst effects and that we have to be linking those up collectively um, across borders and that's the only way that we're really going to be able to deal with um, the climate crisis and when we're and I'm also really conscious of the fact that when we're talking about all of these different industries and all of this different technology that we also have to be conscious of supply chains and the impact that they have in the global south um, and centering those narratives as well.
0: Yeah as we move from the emergency around the pandemic through to the recovery from this crisis how can we as the left fight to make sure that we don't have another lost decade like the one we had after the financial crisis so how can we work together to push back against what we're seeing already happen, which is Conservative MPs coming out and saying, oh, well, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning, but you know, we can't afford to give children free school meals. We can't afford to have a recovery that is going to be sustainable and just for everyone. What are the, the narratives and the strategies that we need to be using at this really critical moment to make sure that the next 10 years is not another lost decade?
1: I think one of the most successful things the left did within the Labour Party but also more widely was showing how austerity was completely a failed economic response um, you know it's made people's lives of course much worse um, the economy didn't actually improve our balanced budget or whatever also didn't happen and the fact that when you have a, a recession it's better to spend you know governments have really cheap interest rates they're able to borrow more widely and that's the time to actually invest to see growth and I think that's one thing that we have to make sure we don't return to those kind of austerity Arguments are coming out from the Conservative Party when they're talking about, you know, there will be a price to pay and there will be, you know, books to balance at the end of this. And I think it's really important that we keep fighting to say that it is, you know, the richest in society, it's those with the broader shoulders who have to shoulder the burden for this. And, you know, we've had communities that have been absolutely decimated, we've had public services that have been starved, and we've seen what happens when you are starving the NHS of resources um, that you, you know, when you've got an economy that is not safe and it's, you know, got zero hour contracts and it's got precarious work and it's got a gig economy um, and low wages, what that does when a pandemic hits in, I think um, COVID-19 has shone a light on all of these big, big, big issues that we always knew about. So I think it's really important that we keep fighting for that redistributive economic Platform and making sure that, you know, that the Labour Party is rooted in communities, that we are, you know, at food banks and we are on picket lines and we are organising with tenants' unions and we're there wherever a struggle essentially is, and that people know that it's not just a transactional kind of politics where you just hear. On election day, because you want my vote is kind of showing that the Labour Party cares and is going to fight for people. And I think that's where we really need to be. There's massive campaigns happening at, at the moment. There's, you know, the public sector um, campaigns around pay inequality, especially being organised through Nurses United. And I think NHS workers say no. There's also amazing migrants' solidarity campaigns happening. And I think it's really important that we on the left and Um, within the Labour Party are organising in all of these spaces.
0: Now, you know, we're talking about austerity, the, um, the government always seems to be able to find money for war and to bomb other parts of the world. Obviously, foreign policy was one of those areas where the kind of, you know, the elite and even big parts of the Labour Party really pushed back against Corbyn. There was that popular speech that he did in the wake of the Manchester bombings that I think really shocked a lot of the British establishment, which had been used to being able to kind of intervene in, in conflicts all over the world without seeing any real pushback from the rest of the population or at least without really taking that pushback into account. What do you think that Labour's narrative should be on foreign policy and could we popularise an anti-imperialist stance? We
1: popularised an anti-imperialist stance before so we can definitely do it again Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it's about political education. I think it's really important that we are doing that work within our CLPs, that we are, you know, investing in alternative types of media like this podcast and various others where people are able to engage in those conversations. And I think, you know, Jeremy has always been known for his um, internationalism and for his anti-racism. And that's why so many people really got excited when he became leader and the membership Um, you know exploded to make us I think the largest political party in Western Europe and I think that's because Mm. people ordinary people don't want us to be going to war they don't want us to be selling arms that kill people they want us to be investing in our communities they want us to be able to you know um, show real leadership when it comes to promoting peace and I know that sounds super cliche but the interventions that we have been involved with in the past twenty years, we can still see the displacement that that has caused, the instability, and then to see those people flee from them their homes and having a government that is talking about putting warships in the Channel rather than providing a safe refuge, I think that shames us um, as a nation, and I think um, we need to be fighting for a Labour Party that is, you know, pro refugee, that is, you know, pro human rights, that is anti war.
0: What advice would you have for um, a young woman who is angry at the injustice that she sees in our society today, just as, you know, in many ways you were, as you you talked about at the beginning of the show when you saw, you know, the war in Iraq and uh, tuition fees and, and all those sorts of things. You mentioned that, you know, you were the type of person who puts yourself forward, who gets involved with things. And that's obviously a big part of why you are where you are today. So what advice would you have for someone who might find themselves in a similar position to you? today?
1: There's loads of times where I wish that I could just kind of walk away from caring and getting involved with things. But I think that doesn't speak to who I am. So, you know, to anyone who's feeling really angry, I think if you're feeling angry, then that is something that you can channel into such amazing, meaningful work. Um, If you're not um, involved with a trade union and you're working, please join a trade union. And even if you're not working, Unite especially has a community section that is for people who are carers, volunteers, students, or retired. So get involved with your trade, trade union. And I think it's really easy to become a member of a trade union or the Labour Party without getting active. But then things don't change unless we get active within those structures. Um, so, you know, get involved with the trade union, the Labour Party, if you're not a member, and then within your CLP. And if those things are really too complicated to understand. You know, there's so many people out there who can break these things down. You know, these acronyms, constituency, Labour Party, what does that mean? It can be really alienating for a lot of people. If you're a student, my university experience, beyond my course you know, I would say it was all right. It wasn't that special, not going to lie, but it was more the organizing that I did around it through the Black and Ethnic Minority Association, through Kashmir Society, through Palestine Society, through the free education campaigns. Um, Because there you meet like-minded people, you realize you're not alone. Those moments where you feel a lot of despair, you know, that that fact that you're not alone really, really helps you and you're able to channel it in campaigns and events um, and, you know, meet people from across the country and if not globally globally as well, who are also doing amazing work and you feel like you know there is something that can be changed. And I think as long as you have hope, that's the most important thing. So get involved in whatever thing you really care about find your, you know, political home in whatever space it's going to be. And yeah, keep organising and don't give up because there's a world to win, like this podcast is called. Um, (laughs) And we have to fight for it. You know, things are never handed to people on a plate. Everything that has been something to be proud of, like the NHS, has been because working people have come to the streets, organising their workplaces and fought for it. You know, the right to vote, people died for that. You know, all of these things we have to fight for because the ruling elite will never just give it to us out of the kindness of their hearts because they're just not about that life.
0: Mm. We are going to clip you saying there's a world to win and use it in all our promo. Right. So finally, we always end the show by talking about movements or campaigns that we want to bring to listeners' attention. So are there any campaigns at the moment you can think of that you'd like to encourage listeners to get involved in? Oh,
1: there's a campaign um, event that I was recently involved in with uh, Nurses United and NHS Workers Say No. And it's um, nurses who are organizing to, um, you know, within their workplaces and they've got Hundreds of thousands, or at least thousands of staff in these Facebook groups organizing to get 15% pay rise because they've been left out of that public sector pay increase. That's a really amazing campaign for people who are working in the NHS and those who are just supportive. There's, of course, you know, migrants organize who are doing uh, a Solidarity Knows No Borders campaign working on campaigns to end no recourse to public funds and also the right to work for refugees and asylum seekers so i would strongly encourage people to get involved with those campaigns and also you know there's tenants unions that are fighting on a regular Mm. basis protecting people from being evicted from their homes and as furlough comes to an end and as the evictions ban has already come to an end these
0: are really important struggles to be involved with Thank you so much Zara Sultana for joining me on a world tour. Thank
1: you for having me.